So uh, we're going to jump right in this morning. Uh, we've been going through the, uh, the, the book of Acts uh, in the New Testament, uh, and today we're going to be in chapter 12, and so if you want to kind of start getting there, that's where we're going to be. Um, and we're going to be looking uh, at today one of the, um, uh, one of the uh, more pivotal moments in the life of, uh, of the church. Um, God is about to do something uh, extraordinary, uh, and he's going to do something directly through the church. Um, that they can't really even fathom or imagine at this point. Um, and so, so that he's going to, you know, as we kind of get into this text and get cranking, um, we're going to see that before God does the impossible, before God does the, um, the, the, the thing that just doesn't seem real, the thing that's, that's outside of reality, before he does any of those things, um, the church will have to walk through yet another dark moment um, in, in this time in the life of this church. And this has kind of been the norm for the church. Uh, the norm for the church has been uh, opposition and advancement of the gospel. Opposition and advancement of the gospel. That's just kind of what, what we've seen in the book of Acts, uh, starting out as we open, as, as Jesus has ascended into heaven, uh, as, he, as he commissions the, 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 the apostles to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that he had commanded them. Uh, as, he, as he issued that commission to them, that, that command to them, um, the church was born, and the minute it was born, it began to see opposition. It began to see uh, people coming at the church trying to snuff out the message of the gospel. Um, and what we've learned so far is the, the more that has happened, um, the, the, the more the gospel has advanced, the more the gospel has, has, uh, has grown out and, and, and gone out uh, into, the, into the world. Um, and and I, I can't help but as I'm just kind of going through the book of Acts slowly, and we're studying, and we're teaching week by week. I just, I, I continue to think about that, 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 that spider effect, whenever the spider's carrying all the little babies, and when you stomp that spider, sometimes there's about a thousand little bitty baby spiders that just kind of scatter, um, and that's kind of how I see the, the church, right? The, the one person or one pivotal uh, uh, figure in the church will, will get taken out through persecution or, or, or something like that, uh, and then ten others scatter, um, and, and the gospel continues to just kind of go, go out further and further. And so that's how I, I tend to see it. But the story of Acts, um, if you were with us, our very first week when we opened the book, one of the things we did before we jumped into uh, verse by verse through this book is that we just did a flyover of the entire book. And, and, and what I wanted to do on that day was just to point out that nearly every turn, there was opposition to the gospel, and then the gospel advanced. There was opposition to the gospel, and then the gospel advanced. And it continued to do that, and it continues to do that today. So I'm saying all that to, to point out the reality that the, the church, uh, they're, they're no strangers to persecution. As we arrive at chapter 12 today, they're, they're not strangers uh, to hardship and, and persecution. Um, in fact, this is where the church was born. The church was born by the shedding of blood. Jesus' blood. So the church, its identity is rooted, it is found in persecution. Um, and so they've grown accustomed to seeing this in their life, in the life of, this, in, in the, life of the church. Um, and they've also grown accustomed to seeing Jesus move in and through their persecution. They've grown accustomed to seeing, yeah, someone uh, is coming after us for the message that we preach. But what we know is that the gospel will advance. The gospel is going to move forward. And so we're kind of okay if people coming at us with that, like that because we know what happens. We know, we know how Jesus works through this. 
Um, and so I'm sure the, the second century writer, Tertullian, he, um, he had this book of Acts in mind, I'm sure, uh, whenever he said this, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase it, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He said that's how the church just continues to blossom and grow. And he, he uses that, uh, that terminology to, to describe that. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 8, he says, We are afflicted in every way, talking about the church, talking about the believers in the gospel, followers of Jesus. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying the body in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And so he's already just kind of pointing that out, that this is who we are as a people. This is, this is what we deal with on the norm as a, as a group of people, as, a, as a, a family of believers. And so God's getting ready to do something impossible with and through the church. He's positioning himself to do this, uh, but before he does this, he's going to humble them. And i got to tell you, um, that's just needed so bad in the church that when God's going to do something big, if God's going to do something big with this group of people right here, before, before we want to take a step in that direction, we need God to humble us. We need to, we need to be used in a, in a manner of humility because there are times um, that, that if God wouldn't do this for us, um, that we would start to forsake him. We would start to think that we're actually on our own accomplishing the impossible. And so it's only in this spirit of humility um, where God can actually use us most effectively. And so he does that here. He does that throughout history with the church. And so I want to read, we're going to pick up in chapter 12 of the book of Acts, and I'm going to read the first 17 verses. And we're going to, we're going to cover this chapter today. Um, and we're going to start with these first 17 verses. So if you want to follow along with me, that's where we'll be. It says it's about that time. This was following from last week after, after the, these group of people went into Antioch and started preaching the gospel to Gentiles. And Gentiles started being saved and a church was being planted there. After these things, uh, that, that after that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That's a very important statement right there. That transitional word, but, right there, means a lot. So the intention is to take Peter out, but the church is praying. So hold on to your seats, basically, is what Luke's trying to tell us. Get ready for something because the church is praying. And so then the, the intentions of man are going to be um, pretty much smashed. And so verse 6, Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the, in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put your sandals, put on your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what, what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. 
it opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all, the, all that the Jewish people were expecting. So when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, the servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Let's pray uh, as we kind of dive into this text. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we, we thank you so much, um, God, for what you're doing um, in this city, in this neighborhood, and around the world. Uh, we thank you so much that, um, God, we're just catching up to, to who you are uh, by looking at this story where the church is born and how uh, we as a group of people today are part of this movement. And so let us not just take these, um, these moments in, in history as a fairy tale. Let us not take them just as a, a, a cute story to read, but God, these, this is actual history. Um, that has everything to do with what we're doing here today and in, these, in this season of life. And so, God, show us, um, encourage us, and challenge us through, the, through your word this morning. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this apostle James that you saw in verse 2, uh, the one who was, who was beheaded by, by Herod, uh, this was the James that belonged to the inner circle of Jesus. He was with Peter and, and with John. He was, it says he's the brother of John. Uh, and it's funny, Jesus would nickname these guys the sons of thunder. It's kind of like, you know, I love that, that, that we get that picture, that Jesus will give people nicknames. He's like, them two cats right there, they're the sons of thunder. You know, we're going to call, we're going to give everybody nicknames. I love that he kind of shows his humanity that way. Um, but Jesus would pour a significant amount of time into these three guys, into Peter, James, and John, uh, apart from the, the rest of the, uh, the circle of apostles. Um, and you just read through the Gospels, and, and you will see quickly uh, where Jesus, uh, some of his most intimate moments in ministry, these three guys got to be a part of it. They got to kind of see it. They, were, they had exclusive front row seats to what Jesus was doing. And so Jesus poured heavily into these three guys, and then kind of his outer circle were, his, were the, were the uh, total 12 uh, disciples that, um, that he taught and discipled. And so these apostles got to see things that, that the other apostles didn't get to see. You can remember just the, on the Mount of Transfiguration when they got to just kind of get caught up in this moment where Jesus and the heavens were opened up um, and they were able to see things that other apostles didn't get to see. And now in just a moment, in a, in a blink of an eye, James is gone. He's been taken out. And it really, like, there's not, no, there's not any, like, um, um, leading storyline kind of taking us there. It's just like, yeah, in these days, uh, James got picked up and his head got chopped, up, chopped off, and then we're going to move on with the story. Um, and so that's, that's interesting, right? That uh, I, I would think that that's probably how the apostles would want it, right? They want to be no names. They want Jesus' name to be exalted, not theirs. And so this is how the story goes. And so to add to the chaos, now Peter has, be, has been arrested. 
right? So Herod sees uh, that he eliminates James, uh, and everyone's pleased with that. And so he says, well, we're going we're gonna to take it up a notch. We're going to ratchet this thing up. Let's get Peter, and we're going to do the same thing with him. We're going we're gonna to get everybody uh, uh, kind of stirred up. And so this, there's this chaotic moment, um, and certainly the outcome is going to be the same one as James. That as soon as Passover is, is, has concluded that Peter's, Peter's being eliminated as well. Like, it's just certain, as you see this story coming this way. And so you'll notice throughout this whole chapter, as I was reading this, uh, Luke is very, very intentional, intentional to communicate the timeline, kind of how things are kind of unfolding. He was picked up, like right after the church at Antioch was being kind of planted and, and the gospel started having some, uh, some influence there in that place, over here in this place, here's some things that were happening. It's this time, it's the, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is like Passover, and so Passover is going to kind of conclude uh, this season uh, in Jerusalem, and, and, and there's these, these nights where Peter is in prison, um, and so he's kind of being very specific with the timing of all these events, and he's doing this for a reason, because he wants you and I, as we walk through this, he wants you and I to kind of experience the unfolding of this story as it unfolded. See, we, we have a tendency to jump to the fact that Peter was delivered. But we have to experience it the way Peter was experiencing it. We have to experience it the way the church was experiencing it. This is a hopeless situation. One of our leaders, one of our pastors has been taken out, and the second one, just in a couple of days, he's gone too. So Luke is doing this intentionally, and he, and he wants us to experience it this way. This King Herod that's mentioned in the text right here, this is uh, the one who, who takes James out and prisons Peter. This is Herod Agrippa I. Uh, he is the son to Herod the Great. We learn about Herod the Great in Matthew chapter 2, whenever this King Herod takes out all of the, the, the sons, all of the, all the sons two years and older, all throughout his kingdom, because he was after Jesus. He was, he was tricked by the, by the Magi uh, whenever they kind of took, a, took a, a detour so that they wouldn't have to come back and report that they had actually found Jesus as a baby. Um, and, and so he just kind of goes on a rampage, and he takes all boys two years and, and younger, just takes them out uh, throughout his kingdom, throughout the, the region there in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And so this is the son of that guy, a uh, real classic uh, guy. Um, and one of, the, one of the obvious things that you learn about this King, uh, King Herod Agrippa I is that he has this strong desire to be liked. You see that as he takes James out and he's celebrated for it. He's like, oh, I can get used to some of this. We're going we're gonna to keep doing this. Matter of fact, we're going to take it up a notch because I can get used to being celebrated this way. So this guy desires to be liked. And when he learns that the Jews are celebrating him, he goes and grabs Peter and he says, we're going to do the same thing. It's going to be great. And I'm going to be, um, I'm gonna be a, a hero in the story. But see, he's a, he's, he's a political man uh, who happens to like God. He would be considered a person who's trying to honor God by eliminating these guys. Right? That's how the Jews looked at him. The reason they were celebrating him is because they were zealous and they thought in their religious zeal that this is what had to happen. And so, when, so he's trying to, in his political position, he's trying to also balance uh, this uh, facade of being someone who uh, worships God. Right? And so he's doing evil things here and trying to show you a picture over here of, hey, I'm following God. I'm a religious person. I like God. And so he says, because I like God, I'm going to wait till after this 
festival's over, right? I, we can't do that during this festival. There's a, there's a lot of prescriptions for why we can't do that. So we're going we're gonna to wait till that's over um, so we can honor God, and then I'll murder Peter. And so that was thought of as noble, which is really weird. Um, so Peter and the church know as soon as this festival is over, as soon as this thing is concluded, he's going to be brought out. He's going to be given this bogus trial, and then he's going to be eliminated. And they, so he's just as good as dead. He's fixing to join James and martyrdom, right? He's fixing to be uh, counted as one of the martyrs. And so in this moment, uh, when this impossible situation, this hopeless moment, uh, he, this guy is just as good as dead, what do we find the church doing? Praying. In the most hopeless, impossible situation, the church is praying. Even in those last hours, the text would say on that very night, Herod was going to bring him out. On that night, we find the church still praying. And they just didn't start praying that night. They had been praying for days. Ever since Peter had been imprisoned, they got on their knees and started seeking God. The church has been together in nonstop prayer the entire time, even at the last hour, and God has not answered them. God has not lifted a finger. They have been pleading and fasting and praying that God would intervene, that God would do something. And they're praying way more than any of us pray. They're praying day and night for days, even up to the last hour, and God hasn't budged. He hasn't said anything to them. He hasn't shown them anything. And in those last moments, when God is obviously not coming through, we find them praying. Let that be a challenge to us. Let that be an encouragement to us. Whatever hopeless situation you think you have in your life, you beg and you plead God until He delivers. We see that through Scripture. That... that, that <laughs> He will hear our prayers. How are these people able to be so faithful in prayer? How can we, how can we look, at that, look at this as an example? How are they so faithful? How are they able to stay on their knees begging God to intervene in this situation that God definitely needs to come through on? I think it's because they are absolutely sure. They are very certain that God is the only one who can do anything about it. There is no other person in, in humanity who can intervene in this situation, and they believe that. They obviously uh, can't go and negotiate with Herod, right? They can't go to him and say, hey, we were with this guy, and we really want you to let him go. That can't happen. In fact, they're not even concerned about getting an audience with Herod. They don't even care about getting an audience with Herod because they have an audience with King Jesus, Right? They have his full attention, and they have him in prayer. And so they're like, why would, I go to, why would I go to that guy and try to negotiate? Why would I go to that guy and ask for deliverance when, when we have Jesus right here among us, that he could hear our prayers? And so this is an important lesson for us. Like if we were really, really honest, um, we hardly believe this to be true for us. Like If I'm being honest with you, I hardly believe this at times to be true, that when, when, when you and I, when we experience some difficulty, when we experience some hardship, when we're going through a trial, uh, and we, like we might pray, right? We might go to God and pray about it. We might ask other people to pray about it. We might go and ask God, God, do something about this. God, intervene in this situation, take control of this situation. 
but our actions typically communicate what we really believe. And our actions usually, uh, in a time of difficulty and, and trial and hardship, they'll consist of leveraging our resources, whether they be political resources or social resources or financial resources. When something, when we get in this, in this, this, this pinch where, where we need God to come through, we'll, yeah, we'll offer up a, a, a prayer, just an obligatory statement to God, but then we're going to grab control of the situation and try to work it out. That's, w- that's what I do a lot, and I know that's what a lot of you do. And so we hardly believe that God is the only one that can do something about it, and we trust and we rely on him for that. But I'm going to tell you this. One person, one person on their knees, whispering, with the faint voice, the weakest prayer ever prayed has more power than any kind of power you can tap into. Prayer is a very powerful resource at our hands. And it is the only way that God will hear us. It is the only way that God will come through. And it's not just, hey God, I'm uh, sharing this with you and then, uh, you know, would you work something out and I'm going to go on. No, these people were on their knees day and night All the way to the last hour, the situation became more and more hopeless. And the more hopeless it became, the more their prayer increased, the more their faith increased. And as followers of Jesus Christ, those of you in this room who say, I'm a follower of Jesus, nothing should make more sense than prayer. Nothing should make more sense that that praying uh, is, is the, the means that, that look, I understand that God is hearing me, that God is listening, and he does that through prayer. Nothing should be more normal or make more sense than that. And you see in verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, so we're at the very last minute, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So Peter's being guarded by four squads of soldiers. He's bound in chains, one on each side of him. I don't, I I guess I don't imagine Peter to be this dangerous, this ferocious. Like the the, the only action I've seen Peter was him pulling out a little fishing knife and and trying to end the guy by cutting his ear off. That's That's the most violent I've seen him act at all in this whole story. And so I don't see him so dangerous that he's, got to be chained by trained soldiers, guards, people at the door, layers of security, right? And, and it's like he's being treated as public enemy number one. And, and just as I was thinking about this, you know, like, I, I bet, I bet that, that they thought that they had Peter in captivity, right? I bet they thought that, like, we got the guy. He's locked down. He don't have any clothes on. <laughs> He's chained to two soldiers. There's people at the door. There's gates and doors of, of soldiers. We have him in captivity. I bet Peter didn't think about it like that. I bet Peter's like, I got these guys in captivity. I'm just as good as dead anyway, so what do you think he was doing for those several days that they were chained to his side? I bet you he was unloading Jesus on them. Because that's what we see, the, the New Testament church, these leaders, that's what we see them doing. We see Paul do the same thing. And so, in all actuality, I bet they're being held captive, that he's not being held in captivity. And I would say this with a little bit of confidence because of what I see Peter doing. You notice what he's doing? He's sleeping like a baby. He, the dude's out, man. Like, and, and 
if you study the text a little bit, what you'll learn is that Luke's trying to be funny. He's trying to be humorous here. He's showing us this. Like, home dude was out on the very last minute of his life, the eve before his execution. This dude is sleeping. And not just like kind of nodding off. He was dead, man. He was dead to the world. He's sleeping so hard that when an angel of the Lord shows up and the light shines all over in the room, it doesn't even phase him. And as a matter of fact, he's sleeping so hard that the angel of the Lord has to go and say, Hey, hey, get up, Peter. We got to go. Peter, get up. Peter, get up. And he's still not all the way awake. He's sleeping so hard. He is such at peace that he, he, has to, he thinks he's in a dream as he's walking out. Like he's just kind of out of it and he's in a daze. And he doesn't really come to himself until he, come, until he walks outside of the prison. How does that happen? How does a man sleep like that on the eve of his execution? Think about it. How does a man sleep like that? I think there's two obvious ways that we see in Scripture how this man sleeps. The first one, the church is praying. The church is on their knees for this man. He's at peace. He's at peace knowing that there's a circle, there's a family of people who aren't going to stop seeking God on his behalf so he can sleep in peace. He's sleeping. They're praying. But also another obvious thing just in Scripture that I would say allows him to do this, allows, gives him the peace to be able to sleep on the eve of his execution, hours before he's fixing to, to be executed, is that Peter died a long time before this. Peter was dead a long time ago. Long before he walked into this prison cell, his life was over. In fact, he would probably experience dying a little bit in, in, in layers, right? Like the first one was when Jesus was standing trial and they locked eyes and after he had denied Jesus three times, he ran away crying. You know, he died a little. The text would even tell us that he, did, he excluded himself from the, from the circle of Christianity at that point. said, I don't belong there anymore. But Jesus came after him. And Jesus met him on the banks on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias. He yanked his tail off that boat, gave him the nth degree and put his eyes on him and said, Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? And Peter says, Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And they go through that and then Jesus would tell him this, Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, like, to, like we're in the text now, like when, you're, when you get to this point in your life, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go like a prison cell. Like a place where you will be executed. You're going to be carried there. You're not going to want to go there. And, and just so we're clear about what he's talking about, uh, John would give us the, the meaning saying that he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying these things, he looked at Peter and he says, follow me. Follow me. Your life is not yours anymore. It died a little bit when you rejected me. I've restored you. And when I say follow you, that means your life is over. You've died. You've died to yourself. And so Peter could sleep with such peace because he had already laid down his life to follow Jesus. Can you sleep with that kind of peace tonight? Knowing that when you laid your yes down to Jesus, what that meant was that your life as you know it was over. 
and that you now belong to him and whatever he tells you to do, wherever he tells you to go, whomever he tells you to speak the gospel to, that you're to do that, even if that means losing your head. That's what it means to follow Jesus, and Jesus was making no bones about it. And so Peter could be at peace because the church was praying for him. He knew that, and his life was counted as not his own anyway, that he, he had already decided to lay his life down long before. And so the call to follow Jesus with this kind of reckless abandon is the same for you and me. When, when we ask you here, do you want to follow Jesus, this is what we mean. You want to give him your life. Do you want to follow him with this kind of reckless abandon? And for me and for many in this room, what a privilege. What a privilege to be invited into this story, be invited to walk with Jesus in this way and in this manner. And so it's still dark outside whenever Peter, uh, when the time comes for him to be brought out, you saw like it's the, the, the night is still there and, and the hour has come, this very hour he's fixing to be brought out and we find the church praying. So they didn't go to sleep. They didn't say, we're going to wake up in the morning. We're going we're gonna to reconvene the prayer meeting here this, uh, in the morning. You guys go home, get some rest. We're going to come back. They're praying 24-7. And even though they can't see it, they're still praying. God hasn't moved, hasn't shown them anything. He's already answered their prayers. Peter's already free. He's already been liberated. They're still at the house praying. God hadn't shown himself to them yet. He's chained to two guards. He's sleeping like a rock. The angel of the Lord comes in and he has to get nearly violent with Peter to wake him up. All of this, this is very interesting, is that they're having to get so uh, physical with him to wake him up. The angel of the Lord is, that, but the guards never move. They never budge. They never wake up. Because God is sovereign over all creation. He can wake up who he wants to wake up and leave asleep who he wants to leave asleep. The gates of the prison would open on their own accord because all of creation operates under the sovereignty of God. He didn't have to lift a hand. God was doing the work ahead of him. And they don't weave in and out of the city being sneaky like a bunch of criminals. The text is, looks being very, very intentional when he says they went down one street. They walked out, the angel was gone, and that's to communicate boldness, that God was doing something and they were believing it. Like boldness. And then Luke would point out, like Peter was amazed, he would point out three different times. In verse 9, he would say he thought he was seeing a vision. Verse 11, he, when he came to himself, so he's, he's kind of being amazed. And in verse 12, when he realized this, they would, he would use those terms. And God does this kind of stuff all the time. Like he, so many of us have stories like that where we're just like, you know what, man, I'm just catching up to what God's doing. Like, I'm trying to just keep up with what God's got. I'm stumbling into blessing upon blessing upon blessing and not really sure the details of how I got to this point or how we got to this point, but we're just trying to play catch up with God, man, because he's just on the move and he's doing things. And so we're just standing in amazement, right? And this is the story of salvation for all of us. I mean, for those of us who follow Jesus, like when Peter shows up at the house, no one... No one is more surprised by him being there than the people who had been praying for him to be there. These people had been praying for days and days, night, morning, afternoon, evening, every day praying and praying. And who were the ones that were most surprised whenever he showed up? They were. And this is how it usually goes. Spurgeon would say this. Charles Spurgeon, he said this. If the Lord wants to surprise his people, he has only at once to give an answer to their prayers. Like, if God wants to surprise the church, all he has to do is answer their prayers. 
and we're blown away. I can't believe he actually did that. But that should be so normal for us, right? That's what we see in the early church. That's a normal thing, that God would answer prayers and that we would expect that, that, that there's no one else that can intervene. There's no one else that can do anything but God, and so that's who we're going to. And I love what we see and learn about in this, in this passage is that the person who gets it right away is the servant Rhoda. She's the first one. Like, she gets it. Like, she blows past all of the skepticism, and he go, she goes directly to rejoicing. Like, her reaction, without even seeing Peter, she hasn't even made Peter out yet. She just heard his voice. Like, her first reaction was, God has heard our prayers. I know that voice. That's Peter. She takes off to tell everyone else. The rest of the group, they're not buying it. They're, they're not going to buy it. We've got, to, we've got to see him. We've got to put our hands on him. Otherwise, this is, you're, 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 out of, you're out of your mind, Rhoda. And not only that, but somehow or another, they've made up a whole new theology. Like they've gotten so far away from the fact that, that God would, would answer prayers that they would say, oh, it's his angel. As, as if, like, that's a whole, that, where, where did that even come from? Like, they haven't been taught that. That's nowhere in Scripture or anything. Well, that guy just becomes an angel. They, so they're, they're, they are, uh, at this point, they're, they're just scrambling around the, the very thing that they've been praying for. They're just kind of dancing all around it and won't accept the fact that God did answer his, their prayers. And that Peter has been delivered. And the whole point of this section, it's, it's quite obvious. Look at verse 17. But motioning to them with his hand, this is Peter, to be silent, like, hey, shh, 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 shh. shut it. <laughs> I've been released, and you guys are going to get me busted, so be quiet. And then he goes on to say, he describes to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things. Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. The deliverance of God is always meant for his praise. Always. And that's the point of this, this passage. That's the whole point of this section right here. That's why we have that. You see what God has done? Go tell it to the people. <laughs> Go tell the people what God has done. And at this point, we're, we're, you know, this is a good, good spot to conclude the story, right? Like if if, if, if I wouldn't have known any better when we were sectioning up these, these passages to, 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 to schedule week by week, uh, this might have been a good place for us to stop, right? It kind of ends on a happy note. Peter has been delivered. Of course, he has to get out of town because they're going to find him again. But this is a good turning point. But you and I are sitting here this morning because this wasn't the end of the story. We're here today because that wasn't the end of the story. That we don't just stop it right there. Look at verse 18. And when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and, and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. A little excessive, I would say, Luke, that we're going to go through this degree. 
And you can see what Luke's really interested in here. You can see by his writing what, what the things he spends his time on. If you were to take this chapter as a whole and see where he spent detail, this seems to just kind of be randomly showing up there, and then he blows through the story real fast. Herod freaked out. They didn't know what happened to Peter. He killed a bunch of people. He went down there, gave a speech, didn't give God glory. He was gone. That's how fast. So, so you can just take this chapter as a whole and say, what's Luke... What is he, he kind of stuck on and what is he not stuck on? What, what, are, what are the things that are important to him and what are not? And so Luke does want to point out the fact that, that, that it didn't go well for Team Herod, that things didn't end the way that he probably want, wanted them to. But the pivotal part of this text isn't that Herod's pride had brought him down. That's not the point of the text here. That's not the pivotal point. Luke, he's including this part of the story as a means to contrast the final verses of the passage. He's, he's given us this because he's going somewhere else with it. And look at verse 24. But, there's that transitional word. He's contrasting now. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. In other words, Luke is saying, Herod died, but the gospel didn't. Herod dies, and the gospel won't. And that's the story in the, in the book of Acts. That's the story of the church. That's the story of us today. That the enemy has no power. The, the, the word of God will increase. The word of God will multiply. Herod dies, but the gospel lives. And now Luke, he's trying to lay some groundwork because he's going somewhere else. Next week, he's going to be going to a, another place. Uh, and he's laying the story, the foundation for the story out. There's this, there's this missionary expansion of the church that's going to begin next week as we jump into the next chapter. That will follow these verses. And this missionary expansion that begins in the next few verses of chapter 13 continue even to this day, even to this morning, even in this place. That's why it's such a pivotal moment in the story. And we're going to learn about that next week where, where this is the part where, where missionaries are taken from the church at Antioch and they begin being sent out to the world to preach the gospel and to plant churches. And we're, we're a product of that today and we're a part of that, that movement today. This morning, Sulphur Community Church, of, of, of church being planted because of what happened here and, and, and planting churches because of what happens here. It's a pivotal moment in the story, and that's what Luke's trying to point out. So this church, this place, you people, this gathering, this family of people, we are, a, we are living proof that God is still on the move. That from this moment here, chapter, between chapter 12 and 13, between those two chapters, uh, verses 24, 25, and going into chapter thir uh, 13, verse 1, it, we're a result of what's, what happened there. The local church, the Bible-believing churches are a result of what's happened here. And so how can we get in on this impossible stuff that God wants to accomplish? How do we get in on this? Because we're part of the story. We're not only recipients but we're to go and carry this message and plant churches and preach the gospel to every creature on the face of the earth until all have heard. That's, that's the command that's been given by Jesus, and we're a part of that. So how do we get in on that? How do, we be, how do we become a part of the impossible that God wants to do? And I think that we see it as a story opens. We see Peter waiting. We see the church waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord. And that doesn't mean like just sitting down and waiting for God to do something. It's the terminology that we use when we say someone is waiting, on our, ta waiting our tables. I'm serving. I'm constantly serving you, and I'm looking for the things that you need. 
That's what waiting on the Lord means. Until I see a clear uh, direction on what I'm supposed to do or how I'm supposed to engage, I'm going to serve the Lord. And that's what it means, and that's what we see them doing. They're waiting on the Lord. Peter's deliverance came at the last possible moment. At the, at the last minute is when his deliverance had come. He had been arrested days and days before this. He had sat in prison for days and was being kept there until this festival was over. And he could have been delivered at any moment in that week. He could have been t- he, God could have, could, have, could have delivered him at any moment in this week, and he chose the very last minute to do it. And so waiting is what's required. Waiting on the Lord is what is required. And so that's when the angel of the Lord would, would show up. And we find ourselves in these situations a lot where, hey, we need deliverance, but we're not willing to wait. We're in this situation, but I'm not willing to wait. I'm not willing to wait on the Lord. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quickly engage and do something, to try to take control of a situation rather than wait and pray. And, and that's kind of a way to communicate to God, like, God, show me your will in this situation. We pray that a lot. We have to be careful that we're not asking, God, give me all the details so that I can plan accordingly. Because a lot of times when we're asking God, God, show me your will, that's really what we're asking. Show me your cards so I can plan accordingly, so that I can strategize my plan accordingly. And God usually don't, doesn't bow down to our demands, just so we're all clear. And instead, he, he waits until the very last minute to reveal his plans. And I know a lot of us have experienced this in the room where, you know what, it was, it just, it was that God waited that long to do something, to answer, to engage. And this isn't because he's a mean God. is isn't because he hates you. I believe that God has to lead us this way in order to teach us how to trust him. In order to teach us to be willing to say yes to whatever his plans are without exactly knowing all the details of his plans. I believe God has to teach us that. And this is the, these are the moments that he teaches us how to trust him, how to wait on him. And he is always, always on time. God is always on time. He is never late and he is never early. You might feel like that because you have a different timeline, but he's... He's on his timeline, and it's always the right time. So we wait on the Lord, and we believe. We believe on the Lord. Peter's case was hopeless. Like, humanly speaking, it was a hopeless situation. I mean, we take it as that. He was, in, he was imprisoned. He was surrounded by all these guards. He was already condemned to die. His situation, if you just stand back and look at it, it, it it's a glaring reflection of, of our own situation, of just sitting in our own sin, right? It's, it's, just a, it's, it's interesting how it lines up um, the way it does. There's, there's so many people and there's, there's so, so, so many people in our, in our neighborhood and maybe some even in this room who are who are just locked up, man, who are just imprisoned in shame and hopelessness and discouragement, and you are chained by sin, and you are unable to escape, and your situation seems hopeless, and you are even, the scriptures would say, asleep in your sin. You don't even realize that you are a child of wrath. And only Jesus is able to enter this space. He's the only one that can do anything about it. There's no other person on the face of the earth who can engage this space and do something about it. to to illuminate the spiritual darkness in our lives, to break off the chains of sin, to liberate us so that we can follow him. 
this way. So how can you have confidence that he will come through? Like wherever you're at, whatever your situation is, how can you be confident in knowing that Jesus will come through on this situation? It feels like you're at the final hour and, and it's fixing to be over. How can you have confidence knowing that Jesus will engage it? Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's some confidence right there. How would Peter eventually react to all of this? Like as the days and months and years went on, how would Peter remember this moment? How would he, how would he use this moment in ministry later in his life? He would recall this very moment. He would think about it, and he would use these words to encourage us. And I want to close us by reading this words, his words as an encouragement over us. He would say, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the, at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. That means waiting. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever. And ever, amen. Let's pray.